All right, turn to session number two. And also, if you will, please turn to James chapter four. As you're doing that, um, we failed to mention, Jan and I failed to mention last night about um, one of you asked if we had any children, and we do. So I have a son, Joshua, who is 22. He is in our seminary, and um, he is wanting to be in the ministry. So he is currently an intern at our church, and um, he is engaged to be married uh, in July, um, July 11th. And I have a daughter who's, a, who's 19, and uh, she is um, she's a, a junior at Purdue University. And there's a young suitor who wanted to date her, and I said to him, you have to date me first, and that's what we're doing right now. So I'm doing mentoring and counseling of him right now um, before I actually turn him loose on dating my daughter. What? what? I like to phone a friend. I need all the help that I can get. So maybe phone a friend with a shotgun. So, Oh, my daughter's 20. There we go. My helper, my helper is right there. All right, we're looking at James 4 this morning, James 4, 1 through 10. And um, we're going to talk about making marriage delightful. If I want to make it delightful, I have to understand what, what makes it not so delightful. So this morning's session will probably be the heaviest. Last night's, um, we ended on a good note with Christ. Um, the first two points of this one are pretty heavy, um, but they were revolutionary to me. When I began to understand what I'm talking to you about it began to revolutionize my Christian walk because I became a more intentional thinking Christian here. For most of my life, I believed that Christianity was primarily just outward set of behaviors. And unfortunately, many of us also tend to continue to think that, that if I'm just doing a certain good things, and I know you don't believe that saves you, but in some way that um, really sin is primarily outward in my behavior, my question that I'm going to ask today is, what is a, in a roundabout way, what is the source of our behavior? Why do we do what we do? Why does, why does bacon become so important to us men, or something like that, that I'm willing to be unkind to my wife on a night like that, where I was frustrated with my dissertation? Um, so, as we're, before we launch into James chapter 4, however, let me remind you of the context the early church, James was, probably, James was probably the first epistle written not very long after the church was started, and um, it had a growing Gentile population, so you began to have some division in the church between Jews and Gentiles, and the early church, as we know in James chapter 1 verse 2, was facing diverse trials. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, and these trials uh, most likely included based upon what James shouts out in his scriptures, um, James 1.19, this you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear. You had some in the church that were not quick to hear. Can you believe that? And there was disunity. James 1.26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart. There were some in the church creating disunity in regard to not bridling his tongue. So where does our speech come from? James chapter 2, verse 1, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. The rich were overlording and showing... Well, no, no, no. The, um, some in the church were showing favoritism to those who could do, well, them good deeds, such as the rich, and um, showing favoritism to the rich. James 4, verse 11, Do not speak against one another. There were some in the church speaking against one another. So the question becomes... 
oh my goodness, why, there's not unity here. And why do we do what we do with our speech and our actions? James 5, 9, do not complain, brethren, against one another. Does anybody ever have a problem with complaining? Like, why isn't there bacon at my, at my dinner table? You don't raise your hand on that. Um, I'm not asking for personal confessions right now. Um, remember that Christ promised. He prayed for the sweet unity that Christ prayed for. In John chapter 17, he said this, the glory which you have given me, notice that, the glory. There's something about glory here. And what is that glory? The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one. The glory, unity, just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. And, and if marriage is not supposed to be a perfect picture of unity in one flesh, what hope do we have for anything else? But the glory is tied to unity, um, and James is concerned about that. So if you're going to have that sweet kind of unity in your marriage, making marriage delightful, we have to understand what is the cause of our behavior that is not making marriage so delightful. So if you will now, please read with me. James chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what James chapter 4, verse 1 says. What is a source of quarrels and conflicts among you? <clears throat> what is a quarrel, my friends? What is a quarrel? An argument? How do I get into an argument? I open my mouth. Open my mouth. Okay? Where's the bacon? <laughs> we don't, what do you mean we don't have any bacon? Um, what if somebody better comes along? I open my mouth and I get in an argument. James could be asking this question, what is the source of your behavior? Okay, what does our society say is the source of our behavior? What does society say is the reason why you do what you do? I'm victimized. Now, my wife is going to come and talk to us about, um, um, in a little bit, um, how does trauma factor into the source of our behavior? Okay, there's no doubt about trauma and in the past, but a common... A common explanation for my, for my behavior is because of what somebody else did to me. I did what I did because um, somebody else did something to me. What else does society say is a source of our behavior? What else does society say? A disease. What kind of disease? Alcoholism. Okay, calling alcoholism a disease. Uh, what else does society say is a source of our behavior? Environment. Environment. Okay. The environment around me. What else? Evolution. I was just, um, evolved, I evolved this way. Okay. What else does society say? Peer pressure. Peer pressure. Okay. We could go on and on. I am what I, I do what I do because of my low self-esteem, because of my, I'm going to give some psychological disorders here. And again, I'm not trying to be needlessly provocative because I have manic depression, because I have um, a chemical imbalance. I understand that our biology affects us. But really, I want you to see something here. What James says is a source of why you don't have that sweet unity, that Edenic kind of unity um, in your marriage. And it doesn't, this is not just in your marriage. James is not writing this to a marriage past, to a married couple, although I'm applying it that way. 
What does he say? What is the source of your quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source what? What does he say? The pleasures that wage war in your members. Okay? You lust and you don't have. What is a lust? What is a lust? A strong desire. Okay? So you commit murder. Okay, now notice just, here's what we're going to do here. We've got to, I'm going to outline this in this, in these three ways. Number one, we've got to understand the source of why your marriage is not where it should be, or any of your relationships. And then we need to see what truly is this from God's perspective. And then on the third point, we will get to um, the solution to this. So realizing the cause of your wilderness wanderings in your marriage, the quarrels and conflicts, your behavior, the hostility in your relationships, and that term, in the extreme, is also used of wars. The, what is the source of the hostilities in your relationship? That term in the New Testament is also used of wars. It ultimately extends to nation fighting nation, but it starts with you fighting somebody else. Okay? And hostilities in the relationship that, in verse 2, can ultimately lead to the death of relationships, murder. When you go to murder, there is no more relationship there. So you lust and you don't have, so you commit murder. You are envious and then you do not obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. So the reason why you do what you do, what does James say? He doesn't say it's because you have low self-esteem. He doesn't say it's because you have a disease. He doesn't say it's because of your environment. Why do I do what I do because of James? What does James say? Why do I do what I do? because I want to. Let me draw something here for you. And I don't know how exactly how much space you have on your handout there, but let me draw something here for you. You can draw this or you don't have to. Okay, so, so our speaking, our speaking and our acting. Okay, I'm going to call that our behavior. According to James, where does that come from? What does he say? The passions. Your version may say passions, mine says pleasures. Okay. The Greek word is the Greek word here is hedone. Anyway, does that sound familiar to anybody? Um, great. I don't have a prize for you, but um, great hedonism. Okay, you've heard that. Living for my pleasures. We do what we do because of the pleasures in us. Okay. What was I wanting that night with my wife when I came home in a bad mood, otherwise known as sinfully grumpy? What was I wanting? I was wanting bacon. Why was I wanting bacon so much? Because I like it. What, is, what does bacon do for me? It's comfort food. You know this. Yours is not necessarily bacon, but you have your own. So it's comfort food. So my behavior comes from something I wanted. I wanted pleasure that day, and my dissertation wasn't giving me that. Okay, so we do what we do because we want what we want. So if I had another quiz for you, and I would ask you, why do we do what we do? What would you say? Because I? As you understand that, that is not what the world says. 
So the reason why your behavior is not right with your spouse is not because of what your spouse is doing, because you're wanting something. Turn with me. Hold your place there to James chapter, in James 4. Hold your place there. But please now turn to Matthew chapter 15, verse 15. I'm going to show you something else. So hold your place there. And let me, set, <coughs> let me set the context for you. Matthew 15, 15, Peter, <coughs> Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. So here we go. Um, the Pharisees were quizzing Jesus about why his disciples did not go through the ritual hand washing before they ate. Jesus told a parable, and then Peter said, explain the parable to us. And Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? Verse 18, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from where? The heart. And those defile the man, for out of the heart comes, I'm going to add something here, thinking, thinking, okay, I'm going to do something that seems a little bit repetitive, but just humor me for just a moment. Murders. Okay, is murder an action or speaking? Murder, action, or speaking? It's an action. Adultery, action or speaking? Action. Fornication, action or speaking? Action. Thefts, action or speaking? Action. Next one, careful, false witness. Speaking. And slander is the next one. What is that? Okay, so Jesus Christ here just said our thinking, our acting, and our speaking, where do they come from? They come from the heart. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I, I see a contradiction here. Do you see it? Does anybody see it? James says that our behavior comes from our pleasures. Jesus says it comes from the hearts. How am I going to reconcile this? Uh, there's a contradiction. This is why I don't study the Bible. It's full of contradictions. Maybe we should just throw it out and go with, I don't know, Freud or something like that. Is that what we should do? Is that what we should do, guys? How do I reconcile this? Je Jesus says the hearts... Our behavior comes from the heart. James says it comes from our pleasures. Which one is it? Yes, thank you. Okay. It's the pleasures. When James says the pleasures that wage war in our members, he's talking, about our, he's talking about the same thing. He's talking about the same thing. Okay, so at, at a minimum, the heart, the heart is where... Your greatest love is at any given time. What do I want more than anything else? It is what is motivating me. What I'm wanting. I do what I do because I want what I want. Not because I have a genetic tendency from my parents. Not because I have some kind of a biological condition. Not because I have a dysfunctional family. We all have that. Not because I have low self-esteem. It's because I want what I want, the pleasures in my heart. The moment I start saying this verse, Matthew 6, 21, 
you'll know it. Where your treasure is, what? Notice the terminology where your treasure is. Look for what a person treasures. Look for what a person delights in. Look for what a person loves. Look for what a person finds pleasure in. And when I find that, what have I found? When I found what a person loves, what have I found? I found the treasure, but I have found the essence of their hearts. That night with, that night with my wife, what did I love more than anything else? I loved, I loved what the, sweets, the, the salty, savory bacon could bring me more than I loved who? More than I loved who? My wife. There's somebody else in the picture. More than I loved who? God or Christ. Okay. Now, I have been vulnerable with you guys, telling you my deep, darkest secret about bacon. You tell me what you want. Okay. What, what are the things that... You say, Brent, I'm not comfortable with you enough. You're a Hoosier. You're not the... <laughs> what, Hawkeye. I was about to say Buckeye. That's the other way. Okay. <laughs> I know. I hear groans. I hear groans. Okay, well, you're not, you're, Brent, I'm not comfortable with you enough to tell me what I want. So talk to me about what your neighbor wants. Okay, what does your neighbor want? <laughs> what do we live for? I want control. Why do I want control? What, what does control bring me? I want control. So oh, power. I, I control. I have power. I exercise influence. Why? What, what does power bring me? So I can get what I want to bring me, pleasure. Okay, so power or control. I want control. That's something we love. What else? What else does your neighbor want? Yes. I want lack of conflict because I want ease in life. Why do I want ease in life? What does it bring me? Pleasure. You can begin to see why James summarized all of this in terms of pleasure, right? So we want power, we want ease or pleasure. We want bacon, which brings me pleasure. What else do we want? What else do we want? More time in the day. Why? Why do I want more time in the day? So I could do all the things that I want, so that I could then not feel pressure, so that I could then have pleasure. What else do we want? You're missing some. What? Things, possessions. If I just had a, a new car, a new house, or a house that didn't have a leaky roof or something. Okay. What else do we want? What? Chill. I just want self-parenting children. That's what I want. <laughs> right? And that would be awesome. Then you could go to Disney World without having any issues. What else do I want? Safety and security, because it makes me feel at ease. And I know in the world we don't have safety and security. How about the praise of man? I just want you to think that I'm amazing in every way all the time, right? Is that really too much to ask? Really? <laughs> Guys, these are the things that we want and we love and we live for. Now, are these things, is it wrong to want a little bit of bacon? Unless you're Jewish Orthodox or something like that. <laughs> Is it wrong to want a little bit of bacon? You tell me. You said no. When does it become wrong? Look at James 4, verse 2. James 4, verse 2. Go back to James 4, verse 2. 
you lost and you don't have. So you want something. So what are you willing to do to get it? So in some way you're wanting something and then your outward behavior in your acting, you murder. That's in the extreme case, the death of a relationship. Okay, that's in the extreme case. How many of you have murdered recently? One, maybe two. <laughs> Let me tell you one of my most embarrassing moments. Uh, I teach in the heart quite a bit. And, you know, I get to James 4, verse 2, and I always ask a rhetorical question. How many of you committed murder recently? And um, I don't expect anybody to raise their hands. So I, I lead you to, how many of you committed murder recently? I don't expect anybody to answer. I forgot one time who my audience was because I was just doing my thing. And I was in a jail. <laughs> how many of you committed murder recently? And two guys legitimately raised their hand. <laughs> But there was, a quick, there was a quick retort to that, to my stupidity, and it was this. I understand, my friends, but your murder did not start with the outward action of pulling the trigger. How is it that Jesus Christ said this? You have heard that it was said, thou shalt not commit murder, but I say to you, everyone who is angry is, is guilty. How can Jesus Christ equate a murder, pulling the trigger with an inward seething anger. How can he do that? Where does murder start? In the hearts. So no, it's not wrong to want a little bit of bacon or pleasure or anything like that. But when you begin to see it creep out in your behavior, something has gone wrong in the heart. You lust and you don't have, so something is becoming wrong in your behavior. Something has first gone wrong in your hearts. Again, James 4, verse 2, you are envious and you cannot obtain. What is envy? Tell me what envy is. What is envy? Jealousy. What is jealousy? Give me simple words. I want something. I do what I do because I? I want what I want. Always, always, always. Say always. Always. You are envious and you cannot obtain, so you be unkind to your wife. Where's the bacon? <coughs> this is the state of our hearts. In, in accordance with James 4, verse 2, think about, think about you. Okay, ask yourself some questions. What do you love most in life? Okay? And I know, and, and I will know by based upon how you respond when you don't get it. Bacon. Okay. What do you love most in life? What do you desire most in life? Where do you find your hope or security? Or when, when you don't receive what you think will bring you security, a, a good stock market year, a nice job, do you begin to worry and fear? And that tells me where your heart is and where your treasure is. So what do you fear and worry about? What do you think you need most in life? A spouse that does my will. What do you think, for what do you spend most of your energy in, tr in trying to obtain? What does your world revolve around? 
what angers, distresses, or depresses, or worries you the most? Who must you please? All of that tells me where your heart is. And what person's acceptance, possession, achievement makes you somebody. Do you know... Um, In 1977, I'm sorry, that was Star Wars, 1976, there was a movie that came before um, Star Wars, Rocky, okay? Rocky had to go the distance. He had to go the distance with Apollo Creed, and he did. He didn't win, but he went the distance. Does anybody remember why Rocky said he had to go the distance? He didn't care if he won or lost, but he had to go the distance. Do you remember what he was saying to Adrian? What? I did it for you. Um, not quite. He may have, but when he was laying down with Adrian, here's what he said. I have to go the distance to prove to the world that I'm not a bum. To prove to me. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, did you get that? Did he hear it? Okay. Pride and humility. This will keep, keep your head down. Head from being really big. Pride and humility. What was, what was Rocky living for? To prove himself somebody. The praise of man. Now, Robin Williams, you remember Robin Williams? What did he die of? No, he didn't, he didn't die of depression. He maybe was depressed. He, was, he, he committed suicide. Now, later on, they determined that he did have a brain disease, okay? Now, Robin Williams was one of the most comic geni geniuses ever. He was so quick. Can you imagine, if you did not know about it, that you had a brain disease that was taking away your quick wits, and that's what you were living for? If you were living for your quick wit, and your brain disease was taken away, I'm sorry, was taking away that quick wit, how would that make you respond? If that's what you were living for, if that's where you found your identity, to live to make people laugh, and your quick wick wasn't so quick anymore, how would you respond? Same way, same way that Brent Oakwin responded when he was at Purdue living for his own identity of trying to be a big fish, but he found out he was a little fish in a big pond and he got depressed. I don't know if Robin Williams ultimately committed suicide because of that, but you can see the logic. This is not hard to understand. When we don't get what we want, bacon, whatever it may be, we respond. Okay? We respond in certain ways. Now, take a look at, take a look at James 4, verse 4. Okay? James 4, verse 4. Understand... And here's your notes here. Um, so we've covered everything. Whoops, hold on a second. Um, we've covered everything under point one. And by the way, if you want to go, if you want to know a little bit more about the heart, I would encourage you to buy Gospel Treason by Brad Bigney. That's a book. And um, you can go to faithlafayette.org. And there are videos there of me teaching on the heart. They're free. Okay? I use them all the time in my counseling, my discipling, sometimes my uh, small groups. Um, 
But if you want to understand why you do what you do, so why is your marriage is not the Garden of Eden? It's, well, it's because um, uh, you do what you do because you want what you want. So Gospel Treason by Brad Bigney and the Heart of Change video series by me. And again, those are free. And now point number two, we need to understand what this is. Be sobered by the description of living for my pleasures. Be sobered by this description of living for my pleasures. Okay? Oh, let me ask you, let me, before I go to that, let me mention one more thing. Imagine, because I, I will build on this question just a little bit later. Ask yourself this question. What, if it were taken away from me, would devastate me? What, if it were taken away from me, would devastate me? And once you ask yourself that question and answer it, there you found your heart. What are you living for? What, if it were taken away from me, would devastate me? Because we're going to ask that of Jesus in just a moment. So hang on to that question. But when our hearts are chasing these pleasures of our, the, the hedonistic pleasures of our hearts, we need to be sobered by the description of living. So what does God actually call this? James chapter 4, verse 4. Okay. You adulteresses. This is spiritual adultery. So I'm going to go back to this little diagram right here. I'm going to draw God right here. Okay. I'm going to draw an arrow right here. And I'm going to draw a little lightning strike right there. Spiritual adultery. This is spiritual adultery. You adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? That's why I drew a little break in my fellowship with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Why is this spiritual adultery? Oh my goodness, that's a very harsh term. Come on, he, he's not talking about us. We're not, we're not adulterers. You know, the neighbors down the street, I know they're committing adultery because I've been gossiping about them. But James is not talking about us when our hearts are filled with these kinds of hedonistic pleasures. I do what I do because I want what I want. Is James talking about us when he says, you adulterers? Say Yes. Why is this spiritual adultery? Um, it is idols. Okay, it is idols. So I'm, and we'll make that connection in just a moment. But let's first stick on the term adultery. Why is this adultery? The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. Or the people are God's people who he wed, right? Okay, now... now. Think with me for just a moment in Exodus chapter 19. Okay, God brought, <coughs> God brought Israel out of Egypt. Um, and he said in Exodus chapter 19 this, I have brought you out of Egypt and I have carried you here on wings of eagles. Okay, now, what did Israel contribute to her own deliverance? Does anybody know? What did Israel contribute to her own deliverance? nothing. So God is saying, I bought you out of slavery. 
I have given you new life and I'm taking you as my bride. And the very first thing that I want you to do, what's the very first commandment? Very first commandment. First commandment out of the Ten Commandments. That's the greatest. That's the greatest. What's the first commandment out of the ten? Have no other gods, or let me put it in a different way, have no other husbands before me. Okay? Have no other husbands before me. So God was marrying Israel, his people. And a marriage, and let me me give you a marriage, it is a binding public legal contract. When we vow, it's binding and it's public and it is legal. And you'll notice God calls Israel out. He weds himself to Israel. And then comes the law about what Israel is supposed to do. The law comes before or after they're saved. The law comes before or after they're saved, so to speak. Does it come before or after? I delivered you here. And here's what I want. I want you to, if I have loved you, I want you to learn to love me and what I value. So the first thing that I value is I want you to be a faithful wife. And then here are the other things that I value, the rest of the Ten Commandments, okay, so, and the rest of the law. And then all of that was publicly solemnized. And so God married Israel. So what is spiritual adultery? What is spiritual adultery? What? What is spiritual adultery? Putting something before God. That night with my wife, It may have been a silly example, but was I a spiritual adulterer? I was. And I am trying to elevate the soberness of this. So think through, what what are you living for? Why do I do what I do? Because I want what I want. And I don't always have my first love as God. And I know that by when I don't get it, how do I respond? How do I respond that night I was unkind to my wife? Spiritual adultery. Look at verse, look also at verse, um, chapter 4, verse 6. It's the second thing that um, this says, be sobered by the reality. Verse 6, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore God says, God is opposed to the proud. Oh my goodness, come on, James. <laughs> Come on, James, spiritual adultery, and then he's calling me pride, proud. Man, this is a bad day. He's calling me proud. Why is this? Why are these things, so let's go here, spiritual adultery and proud? Why is my actions pride? Why is my actions proud? Think of my example that night with my wife. Why was I proud? Why was I proud? It is all about me. It is all about me. In my, uh, in my eyes, my wife existed to bring home the bacon that night. I mentioned that last night. Okay. If I had thrown up a Hail Mary prayer to God, God, please give me, what would I have asked for? I should have asked for grace. <laughs> but I would have probably asked for bacon. God, give me bacon. 
So God becomes my cosmic genie and my wife exists to serve me. Who is on the center of my throne? Me. Now, what's the greatest commandment? Greatest. I did not say first. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God. What is the second? Love your neighbor. So pride is the opposite of loving God and loving my neighbor. I was using God and using my closest neighbor for myself. Pride is the antithesis of that. Okay, now, let me now build upon what I mentioned last night. George MacDonald was a guy. <coughs> has, anybody, has, has anybody ever heard the name George MacDonald? What do you know about him? You know anything about him? He did inspire C.S. Lewis. So, um, you know, C.S. Lewis has, um, you know C.S. Lewis for his fantasy writing. Guess what? George MacDonald was also a fantasy writer. And um, George MacDonald also was a deep thinker. He was a, a preacher. And C.S. Lewis has such an amazing insight to the nature of man because he, and we all have what we have because we received it from others. And he, C.S. Lewis received a lot from George MacDonald. C.S. Lewis, in a book, Surprised by Lewis, details his own conversion, and he prefaces that chapter with a quote by George MacDonald, the one principle of hell is, I am my own. Okay, so last night, we were talking about a different guy who said, the choreography of heaven is my life for yours. George MacDonald said, the principle of hellish, which one of you got last night. Um, my my living for myself is selfish, but it's hellish, okay? So, C.S. Lewis would later write in Mere Christianity one of the most significant descriptions of pride, but he got that understanding most likely from George MacDonald. And I want to read to you. I want to read to you. Um, you can read it here. I'll read this for you. Um, you don't, don't try to write that down. Don't try to write that down. But here's the full quote from George MacDonald. The one principle of hell is, I am my own. I am my own king and my own subject. I am the center from which go out all of my thoughts. I am the object and end of my thoughts. Back upon me as the alpha and omega of my life, my thoughts return. My own glory is and ought to be my chief care, my ambition to gather the regards of men to the one center, myself. My pleasure is my pleasure. My kingdom is as many as I can bring to acknowledge my greatness over them. My judgment is the faultless rule of things. My right is what I desire. And the more I am all into myself, the greater that I am. I mean, that is society right now. Go find yourself. The fullest expression of you to find your meaning is to, to make sure you're being true to yourself. The less I acknowledge debt or obligation to another, the more I close my eyes to the fact that I did not make myself. The more self-sufficing I feel or imagine myself, the greater I am. I am free with the freedom that consists in doing whatever I want, whatever am I inclined to do, from whatever quarter may come the inclination. To do my own will, so long as I feel anything to be my will, is to be free and is to live. 
capture that. The one principle of hell is to do my own will. Now I want you to just remember, what did Jesus Christ say in the Garden of Gethsemane? Not my will. So that night when I came home to my wife, my will be done. I need bacon, and if I don't have it, if I don't have it, you're paying. Why do I, why do, I do what I do? Why do I do what I do? Because my will be done. Okay, it's not because you had a bad day. I do what I do because I want what I want. You know, in an extreme. So the one principle of hell is my will be done, my life for me. And that leads to the death of relationships. You lust and you don't have, so in the extreme, you murder. We wake up in the morning, thousand thoughts of killing our relationships. You're not, you're not talking about it in these terms. But you wake up in the morning and I get up and think, how can I have an easy time at work today? To do the least amount of work, my will be done. What's happening? The death of my relationship with my boss. A mom thinking in the morning, how can I avoid the children's parasitic behavior today? Sucking the life out of me. What's really happening is death in my relationship with my children. A husband coming home thinking, now is my time to think about me. Death in my relationship with my spouse. A wife seeing her husband come home and thinking, now it's his turn. It's my time to relax. Death in my relationship with my husband. Church members, please hear me on this. Coming to church and thinking about what's in this church for me. Who is going to talk to me today? Is the pastor going to deliver the message according to my desires? Let me just say to you, no, he won't. <laughs> What's happening is death in your relationship to your church. Or let me turn it on to the pastors. Pastors here. A pastor saying, I'm tired of being patient with these parasitic sheep. <laughs> They're sucking the life out of me. What's happening is death in the relationship with my flock choreography of heaven is my life for yours the principle of hell is my life for me and I would encourage you to also um, get the resources that I've been handing out so um, this heart here is an adulterous heart and a proud heart Okay. And you'll have to come to your understanding of, do you believe that pride is just one more sin in a long list of sin like fear, despair, unkindness, sexual immorality, or is pride the root issue? When I say I do what I do because of what I love, and I love me more than I love anything else, you really understand that's your pride and that is the roots of why you're in the wilderness when Eve reached for the fruit and said my life for me this is what I want that's why you're in the wilderness and that's why your marriages are struggling now okay not because of you may have trauma in your background okay and I understand and that'll make it more difficult my wife will talk about come on up here Janet for just a moment and if you could take that in mic. So how does trauma impact this? Okay, so in your background, 
Um, so, go ahead. Oh, 9.30? Our next session starts in 15 minutes. We'll skip this part. Maybe we'll skip this part. Okay. I was not watching my clock carefully. So I'm going to get you out on, I'm going to get you out, unless I'm going to get you out in five, eight minutes, and then we're going to start five minutes later. Okay. Okay. So um, let me do this. Let's go back to the solution, and I can do this really quickly. Okay. If the problem is pride, my friends, if the problem is pride, what's the solution? If the problem is pride, what's the solution? Okay, humility. Look at James chapter 4, verse 10. What does it say? James chapter 4, verse 10. What does it say? Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. What does verse 6 say? I'm sorry, yeah, verse 7. What does verse 7 say? Submit yourself. As opposed to you being the Lord and the King of your life, get yourself underneath God. Submit yourself. Humble yourself. Okay? Now, let me draw for you a picture of this and um, show you how beautiful this is. Okay? Remember the question that I had asked you. What, if it were taken away from you, would utterly devastate you? And if I can find the answer to that, if I can find the answer to that, I have what your heart is. Was there a time in Jesus' life where he was ever devastated? This is an interesting question. Jesus wept. I wouldn't call him devastated right there in John chapter 11. Was he devastated? Was he devastated ever in his life? How about before that? In the garden. Um, the garden of Gethsemane. Does anybody know what Gethsemane means? Gethsemane. Well, it does mean, it actually means olive press where you crush, and the garden, it was the, so the Mount of Olives, Garden of Gethsemane there, where they crush the olives. So this is the garden of crushing. So Jesus Christ goes to the garden of crushing, and the gospels say that he fell on his face almost dead. Before he died! And Luke, the doctor, says this, um, Luke, the doctor, says this. He was sweating blood, which is a medical condition known as hematidrosis, where you're under so much pressure that the capillaries in, your, in the sweat glands burst and you're sweating blood. So in the garden of crushing, our Lord and Savior goes there. And he falls flat on his face, almost dead. What is he devastated about? So, 
you said it, the greatest treasure of his life. What was he about to, what was he about to face? Separation from God, which his father, the son who had only and ever known, the son who had only and ever known the bosom of his father. And now somehow, and we don't fully understand in the, you know, how this happens, God separates from God. And his, what, was, what was Christ's greatest delight? That if it was going to be taken from him, he was devastated. His relationship with his father. Compare that to you and me. What am I devastated by? A lack of bacon. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and you laugh, you should. That is sadly horrific. Jesus Christ was the one who you know what his treasure was. His father's presence and that was it. And when that was going to be taken away, he falls flat on his face. But he gets up and what does he say? What does he say? He utters the choreography of heaven. My life for yours. Why does he get up? Because he loves you and he loves his father. The greatest commandment and he loves you. Second is likened to it. And he gets up and says, not my will but thine. The choreography of heaven which gives life. I want you to see. And in James 4, James 4 First commandment is submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, and repent. That's the solution. You'll see our Savior was an example of those submitting to God. Thy will be done. Resisting the devil. Um, you saw how he did that throughout his life. And letter C is interesting. He was near to God all the time, but then at the, on the cross... He forfeit God's presence so that you could have it. Okay. Now, for you and I, when we submit to God, we come to God, and we, when we turn our eyes upward, we see the beauty of the choreography of heaven in Jesus Christ. And I see God's love for me in Christ, and I see Jesus is better than the God of bacon. Jesus is better than the, than the God of the praise of man. Jesus is better than the whatever it may be. Substitute your God in there. That's not Christ. And when I see that God is better, and I draw near to him to see that Christ was far from God so that I could be near, then I'm in a position to repent day by day of chasing after other gods which destroy your marriage and your relationship. The principle of hell, my life for me, ends in death of all of that. Okay, so with that in mind, let me just give you a quiz. I do what I do because of what? I want what I want. Okay, I do what I do because I want what I want. The one principle of hell is I am my own, my life for me. That's what's making your marriages um, not Eden. Okay? What you and I have to do is daily recognize the patterns of which we are living for. What is the tendencies of my heart when I'm living for myself? And Janet and I will then come and talk about our testimony of how to make our marriages a safe place in 15 minutes, okay? You have your 15-minute break, and we'll be back here 
at 10 till 10.